Hello, church. My name is Hejay, and today we'll be reading today's passage from 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 39. Please follow along on the screen or in your Bible. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, followed, followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me and Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me, and all the people come near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the reading of God's word. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming on a very rainy Sunday. I hope everyone was able to get here safely. I want to thank EJ for reading the text as well. Uh, We are in the midst of a new sermon series. Uh, I'm very excited to do one on the prophet of Elijah, which we entitled The Fiery Prophet. I believe there's like a cool graphic. Is there above my head? Cool. Uh, So really excited about this sermon series for a couple of reasons. Well, one, um, it's self-serving because my son is named Elijah. um, And there's a reason for that. Um, When we knew we were getting a a, a son, we went through a variety of names. I threw out Stefan out there because he's a holy man in Acts. Um, But my wife caught on and said, no, we're not going to name our son after Steph Curry. So we didn't do that. Um, I thought about Zion. Uh, I love the name Zion. I'm also the meaning, which could be a completely different sermon. And that's actually his legal middle name. But, you know, um, it just, it, you know, there's also an NBA player named Zion Williamson. And I'm like, I don't think my son will look like him either. And I came about the name Elijah um, because I remember specifically in a class in Hebrew, uh, the professor, I'm horrible at Hebrew, was then, still now. But one thing he said to me stuck with me. Um, he was telling me how every Hebrew name has a story. Uh, you know, our English names do have a story, but often we're not named because of the meaning of our name. Like, my name, Eugene, I'm sure has a meaning, but I was named after uh, an electrical violinist, you know, because my parents wanted me to be that. But in Hebrew, uh, the names itself tell you the story of who that person is. Um, so Jacob is, is often the deceiver. Israel is the one who struggles with God, which aptly describes the Old Testament, and even maybe even today now. But Elijah was a very interesting name. And Elijah, if you break out the Hebrew, it's just two Hebrew words. It's Eli and Yah. And what that means is Eli is just a generic way often to say God in the Hebrew, and Yah is the shorter form of Yahweh. So what Elijah's name means is Yahweh is my God. That's the meaning of his name. Right? And I was like, oh, that's cool. So I named my son Elijah after that. And also, I think that name aptly defines who Elijah is and this series that we're about to get into. He's a prophet, and his whole life, his whole ups and downs, is proclaiming that truth, that Yahweh is my God. In the midst of a land of many gods to worship, we must remember that Yahweh is our God. And Elijah is a very important yet very short appearance in the Old Testament, but an important character in the biblical narrative. If you remember, um, or if you are familiar with the story of Jesus in the Transfiguration, when he is glorified and the disciples take a peek and they see Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. Elijah carries a lot of weight in the Old Testament lore and, and history and to the Jewish people. And he was probably the, the greatest of the prophets. Now, what is a prophet? I want to do my best to set up a lot of the sermon series today. A prophet in the Old Testament was not one that somehow fortune told the future. That was not the job of the prophet. Although prophets could do that, their main goal was in the time of Israel's disobedience, in the time when Israel is worshiping several other gods, they acted as a mouthpiece of God speaking on his behalf. They were preachers empowered by God with his spirit to speak truth and often rebuke to the people of Israel at that time. Now, where, you know, in the story of the Old Testament, where do we find this story? 1 Kings 
details, first and second kings uh, actually, details the story of Israel after King David. You see, Israel had cried out to God, although God had declared Israel to be his people and that he ultimately was his, their king, they kept complaining, God, we want a human king. Give us a human king. And God relents. And the line of King David is given. And King David does a, a tremendous job. But after King David, every king that leads Israel allows them to fall more and more into disarray. It was kind of already previewed in the text. But every king after King David would take a wife of the land, of the Canaanite land. And what would happen is the Canaanite religion would start seeping in to the, the, the worship of Yahweh. And in this particular story, it's probably the most famous story of Elijah. If you grew up in the church, you've, you know, you've made some craft of, of this. Um, Elijah brings down the fire of the Lord to show the falsity and also the insanity of worshiping Baal. Now, that's the context for uh, the series in itself, but also the sermon today. But let me get into what we can take out of this text. It seems like a very old, archaic story. You read it and it's like, oh, it's cool, but you know, like, thank God we don't live in that time. But there's a lot of similarities to us today with this story. And the main thing I want to, uh, the hope at the end of this message, if the Spirit can help, is this. How can we bring about the fire of the Lord, just as it's shown in this story, into our hearts and into our church? The fire of the Lord, or any, any apparition of fire, is an indication of God's intimate and close presence. You know, one of the most famous uh, instances of this is when Moses encounters a burning bush. What that is is an indication that God's presence has returned to God's people in, uh, in Egypt. And in the same way, this story was showing is that God's presence is with Israel, even in the midst of this disobedience. Now, how is it that we can take this old story from the Old Testament thousands of years ago with completely different cultural settings and religions and apply it to our hearts and churches today? Three things I want to give us. That we need to learn how to stop limping, we need to learn how to stop dancing, and we need to learn how to rebuild the altar. Now, where do I get all these from? These are all from straight from the text. The first thing is this. We have to learn to stop limping to first feel the fire of the Lord and the presence of the Lord in our own hearts. What do I mean? Um, in verse 21, Elijah kind of lays out uh, his, his stern rebuke to his people to remind you of the text that we just read. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long, Israel, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, uh, but if Baal then follow him. See, uh, in this time, there was a king by the name of King Ahab in, in the life of Elijah. And he had married or taken a wife by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel had brought about the worship of this Canaanite idol called Baal. And what had happened is Israelites, they hadn't fully committed to Baal, but Baal now became a part of the buffet of worship that they had. The Hebrew translation, which I found interesting, is when, when, uh, when Elijah says stop limping, it's the idea almost of, hey, stop Stop walking around on two weak tree branches because that's what you're doing. You're wobbling around your life as you worship these two different, completely different gods but act like you can do it all together. And what happens is this. People back then, and I would even argue now, would begin to craft their worship like Chipotle. I always use this example. Uh, but Chipotle is great. 
And why, why is Chipotle so successful? Because in Chipotle, you pick exactly what you want. You can make it as healthy as you want. You can also make it as unhealthy as you want. The chef, has no, the chef is your slave, right? Like the worker, hey, give me extra rice. And sometimes you try and add guac and hope that they forget, but they always somehow remember, right? It's like, dang. But anyways, um, so often, and, and look, that's great for food. I think that's great. But the problem is when you do that with your religions, with your worship, with your heart, something becomes disarrayed. So often, just like the people of Israel, what they did is, oh, they had different gods now. Yahweh was not their god. It was one of their gods. What they would do is, just like Chipotle, they'd be like, oh, we don't have rain. We're in a drought. Oh, we should go to this god of the rain, not Yahweh. Oh, man, I, I, need, I need a baby. I need someone to carry forth my legacy. Oh, let me bring about a sacrifice to the altar of the god of fertility. They acted like they were at Chipotle with their worship. Give me some of this today, give me some of that today, and I'll be okay. And I'll tell you this, not much has changed. For many of us, and I'm speaking uh, those that consider themselves followers of Jesus, and especially if you grew up in the church, this message, at least this point, is for us, me, myself included. Nothing has changed. We don't call them Baal, we don't call them gods, but we still have idols that we make room in our hearts alongside Jesus to worship. Western cultural and philosophical trends have bled into the church, even to the point where now it also skews how we view God. For many of us, God is not the creator of the universe. He is our personal therapist. He's someone that will make me happy. And so much of that type of thinking is not from Scripture. God is not ultimately concerned about your happiness. He's ultimately concerned about your transformation. Now, in the midst of all that, where does that leave us? Um, let me press this example. Um, there's a great restaurant called Brenda's in San Francisco. Um, it's, it's really good. It's this kind of small mom and pop shop. They serve New Orleans like soul food. Um, it's in the tenderloin, so it's like a little sketch to get there, but when you get there, it's, it's amazing. There's always a line, you have to wait. One of my favorite restaurants. A couple of my friends a couple years ago, uh, we visited Brenda's, and the thing is, it's a small, small restaurant. And often what happens is, at these hipster small restaurants, the table they give you is literally the size of this pulpit, right? So I have three grown men sitting, hungry. We've been walking in the rain. We come to Brenda's, and we order like eight dishes, right? And we're so hungry. And we forget, like, I'm, I'm, no joke, it, the table was literally the size of this pulpit with three guys around us. And the waiter comes out with eight dishes, like, well, what do you want to do? So what do we do? Like, oh, Salad? We, on the ground, like literally, right? Water, on the ground, right? Like beignets, in the middle, right? Uh, the gumbo, in the middle. The, the things that we want, and what happens is, in that table, we're like, hey, we gotta make room and organize which dish is the most important. Anything green, it's okay. Just put it down on the ground, right? Anything with grease, put it on the table. And what we're doing the whole time is kind of, okay, which dish would be most important at this point? What can we eat hot? What can we eat cold? Delicious meal. Why would I tell you that story? So often our hearts and our worship, um, we do that. Yahweh or Jesus is just another plate that we try and figure out where can we place on the table that we call our life. It's an important dish, right? For most of the time. But oftentimes it gets jambled around. It might be in the corner. It might not be touched. My vocation is here. My dating life is here. My money is here. Whatever is here. And 
Yahweh or Jesus becomes just another plate on your table. That's exactly what Elijah was alluding to. But what Elijah is trying to get at the people, stop limping around between two opinions. What he's trying to tell you is this. The God that we worship is different. He is not like the gods of before. The gods of before, they're cool with allowing you to share your time with other gods. Our God is jealous for all of you. And what you have to realize is this. I thought about that example of being at Brenda's, me included. We treat God like a dish upon a table, but we have to see God must become the table that we put all of our life around. God has to be the organizer. Jesus and the gospel has to be the sustainer of the plate called marriage, of the plate called our career, of the plate called our finances. And that is where we place everything on. God cannot become a dish on that table. He is the table in which about we organize our life. And if that's true, if God of this Old Testament and New Testament becomes a table of our life, there will be certain restrictions. What Elijah was trying to get out of the people is, look, I get why you're limping around between two different opinions because you're trying to get the best, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. But the God that we worship in the Old and especially in the New Testament is a jealous God. That's a whole different sermon. But what he's saying is, no, I need all of you. And if I need all of you, that means you gotta act in the way that I tell you. We so often, to get back to the fire of the Lord, like how can we get that fire that Elijah brings down into our own hearts? We so often fail to be unaware of God's fire because of our limping nature, because he's just a part of the table. You see, what happens is when you make your ethics, your decisions, your money, your house, whatever, every decision that you make, when you make it according to the best of your ability, the wisdom that God gives us in the scriptures, what happens is there will be a deeper awareness of God's presence. And a couple of side notes here. For every confusing or even undesirable exhortation or, or certain sins where you're like, oh, I don't think that's a sin or like that makes me uncomfortable to talk about it, certain sexual ethics, but, you know, even when you can have sex, like, oh, that sounds so, that sounds so uh, historic, saving sex for a marriage. Why do we even need to do that? Let me tell you this. Every sin, every exhortation, every restriction God gives you, I promise you this, there is a reason. God is not trying to be a prune. He's not trying to, he's not trying to say, like, oh, you can't have fun. Every single command he gives us is, why does he give it to us? Because he is the designer of our souls, I always say this, true freedom is not doing what you want to do, it's doing what you're designed to do. And that's what God gives us. Like, have you ever tried and built Ikea furniture without the manual? It's, it's like, it's straight from hell, right? I, I only, I've just moved to a new place and my wife, like, or sorry, we bought like a bunch of like Ikea furniture and like, I'll tell you, like, true confession, I hate building stuff. I, I really hate, I would hire people, but it's like a waste of money. And one time, like, I get really impatient. I just, oh, I get it, I get it. And I skipped the manual. At the end, we made a table, and it was just completely unleveled, right? And I was like, it's like, it's your fault. Like, you bought this bad table. And she's like, oh, you literally skipped three steps. That's why there's all these empty pieces. So much of our lives, and we're like, you know what? Sex before marriage, that's, that's, that sounds historic. Oh, you know what? Forgiving people, come on, man. So much of us, is, when we do that, we're trying to build furniture without the manual. When you make God the table, the sustainer, when you stop limping around to opinions, your life will change.
but also as it changes, you will become closer to the God who brings about fire. His presence becomes more aware in your life. Yes, there are certain things you might have to say no to, but the things you say yes to become so much deeper in God's presence. So as Elijah says, hey, if you want to feel the fire of the Lord, if you want to see it, Israel, if you want to see it, True North, stop limping, well, what's the next step? As we stop limping between the gods of our hearts, Elijah exposes we have to stop dancing to the idols of our hearts. What do I mean? Um, as the story continues, 450 prophets, pretty size, it's bigger than our church, they come and they say, we're going to try and persuade Israel against Elijah, that our God, Baal, is the true God. And Elijah, he starts trolling them like really hard, like he is a stand-up comedian. So basically what happens is they come and they're just going crazy. Um, verse 26, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon for hours on hours. Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. The better translation is they danced around the altar that they had made. They were trying to make movement. They are trying to do a, a number. They are trying to like, hey, I'm going to throw a musical, Baal. You got to show up. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry out loud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. He's literally saying, like, maybe he's going to the bathroom or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Right? Elijah is literally trolling these, these prophets of Baal. And they cried out loud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. What Elijah is uncovering here is this. If we want to see the fire of the Lord, not only do we need to see that Yahweh or Jesus, he only demands complete attention of our hearts. Elijah also says, look, let me show you this. If you do worship other things other than Jesus, let me show you what you are doing. You are dancing around until you cut yourself to death, until you eat yourself alive. There's a stark difference between the Baal worshipers and Elijah and how they call about their God. One does it in show, in a dance, literally, trying to cut themselves, trying to prove themselves to their God. Elijah, on the other hand, simply says a prayer of faith. Now you see that, and you're like, man, thank God we don't live in that time, right? Because that's crazy we still do the same things in our hearts on an everyday basis. The idols of now and then are the same. You call it Baal, you can call it success. You call it Asheroth, you can call it whatever today. It does not change. It requires you to dance to a point where you kill yourself. And this is the thing, you might like, I, we, we don't worship idols. Like, we're modern people. We have no superstitions like that. I've used this quote a lot, but David Foster Wallace puts it this way, who isn't a Christian, but understood the realities of the human heart. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You, look, I, whatever you want to believe, yes, you don't go to an altar probably and, and give a sacrifice of your best Tesla to your God right now. But there are gods that you're worshiping in your heart. If you worship and create an altar for success or money, what happens? You start dancing. You will never have enough. And to the point where all, when these prophets of Baal were cutting themselves to blood, if you worship success or money, you cut the loved ones out of your life. You have no time for them. 
because the God that you worship demands more. If you worship your beauty or your body or aesthetics, you will always feel ugly. You will always feel like there is someone a little better looking to me on my Instagram, at my workplace, at my school, in my friend group, and you'll always feel not enough. To a point where even, and even, you know, there, there's a lot of memes where like, there's people where they've gone through so much plastic surgery, they don't even look human anymore. What caused them to do that? Why do plastic surgeons make billions of dollars annually in the United States? Because the worship of the God of beauty makes you cut yourself. You know, even for men, like some of us, I, I don't know about here, but some guys in college that I knew, they literally were idolizing just going to the gym and working out. And you know what they did? They got big, but there's always someone bigger. And what do you do? You go on cycles on steroids, and it messes you up, man. Nothing has changed. If you worship power, you will always feel afraid in every new room or group you walk into. Because your whole time, you're looking at those around you and being like, who has more power than me, and how can I get more? And you do so until you shut everyone out in your life. You cut the people that need you most. I can go on and on and on, but what I'm saying is this. Any idol, back then and even now, makes you dance until you cut out the things that make you you. Your dignity, your family, your sacredness, the image of God inside of you. And the problem is this, too. Not only do we do this to our idols, we bring this same type of worship now to Jesus. We think, oh, in Christianity, I gotta dance, I gotta sacrifice, and then God will bless me. That's not how this works. Well, what does Elijah do? He shows us a way out. He, in the last point, repairs the altar of God and prays a prayer not of dance or blood, but of faith and water. What do I mean? This is the last point. How do, we, how do we experience the fire of the Lord? I'll tell you this. Every God you worship that is not called Jesus Christ, they will not give you fire. They will only give you your own blood. They will only make you less of who you are at the end of the day. Jesus is a little different. Jesus is a little bit different, and we see this even prophesied in this story. In verse 30, um, when I was reading this text, uh, the, the phrase that, has stuck out to me, and I think God's trying to keep in my heart, hopefully in your hearts, is this. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. We have to learn how to repair the altar of the Lord, to bring about the fire of the Lord in our hearts. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? In the Old Testament, which we're just reading out of, the only way God's presence could come about to his people was through a mediator. So meaning God's presence was so holy, it's literally fire. And one question you read is this, like other times when God's presence comes down, he cleanses the, the area of his presence of unholiness. And when you read the story, it's like, wait a second, Israel should have been caught on fire, not the sacrifice, what happens? Well, to give a bigger step back, in the Old Testament, the only way God's presence can come is through a mediator. So in Moses, if you remember the story of Egypt in Exodus, it was only through Moses that God could speak to his people because he was too holy and the people were too rebellious. In the temple of the Jewish system that was created back then, God's presence existed only in the middle called the Holy of Holies. And it's only these priests 
who literally consecrated themselves, meaning that they had to make themselves holy on a day-to-day basis for a whole year, they were the only ones that could enter into God's presence. Elijah, in the same way as a prophet, was the only one that could bring about the fire of the Lord to Israel. Well, what happens when Jesus enters the scene? When Jesus goes to the cross and perishes, Matthew 27, 50-51, this is what Matthew writes, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. I think we get the gospel so, we, we undersell it so much. We make Jesus only about, oh, forgive me of my sins, God, and I'm good. But the cross in Jesus offers you so much more. Yes, when Jesus died, he took all the sins of your past, present, and future away. And as long as you have faith in him, you have new life. But that's the beginning of the story. What Matthew is saying is this, when Jesus died, your sins were forgiven and it unlocked something new, the temple of the curtain that withheld God's presence no longer exists. Why? Because we are now the altars, we are the temples of God. We carry the fire of the Lord inside of our spirit. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you, if you told this to any Jew in the Old Testament, they would kill you for heresy. Because they're like, there's no way you're holy enough to even speak those words. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What Paul is trying to tell you is reminding you what Jesus has given you. The fire of the Lord resides within you. Why? because Jesus' blood covers you, and now you have the ability, you have the privilege of not just saying I am forgiven, but I carry God's presence within me, not just for myself, but for those around me, just like Elijah did. We carry the fire of the Lord in ourselves. Do we see ourselves as altars, or just as workers, as people on the rat race, of people trying to get a bigger house, of people just this and that. But what Paul's saying is something different. You are the temple of God, and you carry this fire that Elijah brought within you. You see, it's in true worship and repentance that we, not, when we come on a Sunday, we're not entering into God's presence. God's presence is always there. When you worship, what's happening is you have a deeper awareness of God's presence. And what Elijah is trying to show us is this, repair the altar in your heart because it is broken. It is being, capt- being held captive by different idols. Call it beauty, call it popularity, call it success, whatever, fill in the blank. We have to do the work of repairing the altar of our hearts. And this is what I mean. That means this, if you come on Sunday, It's not enough. And I want to be very clear. I know for some of us, coming on Sunday is a huge step. We feel uncomfortable back at church. We feel uncomfortable being around people, especially around Christians. You know, if you're new to the faith, it's like, man, these guys speak a different language, and I totally get that. Let me tell you this. Sunday is the beginning of your worship. It should be the inspiration to try and worship on a daily basis. 
So how do we do this? Let me end with just two kind of, how do we rebuild the altar? Two, two words that I hope I can give you. Um, the first is this, consecration. Um, it's, it's, it's like a deeply theological word. It sounds like, oh, that's, that's like, that sounds like, I don't want to do that. Me neither, right? Um, but there was a pastor recently that gave a talk on this that really inspired me. And I think God spoke powerfully through him to me and hopefully to you. Let me show you a picture uh, above on my head that I, I found this morning um, from Apple. Thanks. Um, anyone here? I mean, sorry, I shouldn't ask. But a lot of people here that work at Apple. I think some people have even worked on the Vision Pro. Amazing. You're doing God's work. It's crazy, right? Now, if this picture was telling you is this. In 40 years, Apple, and through the legacy of Steve Jobs, built this small little box called a Macintosh that could probably do one thousandth of what the Vision Pro can do today. In 40 years, they've changed the world. Think about that. In 40, like, in 40 years, like for many of us, like, like dude, I, I, I'm trying to lose weight in 40 years. But Apple literally has changed the world. And most of us, the, the holy elect, have an iPhone, right? If you have an Android and green bubbles, like it's, sorry, that's another thing, but it annoys me so much in group chats. But anyways, most of us have an iPhone. But any smartphone, that's changed your life probably. How did that happen? Through consecration. In a broken way, but if you read the story of Steve Jobs, he sounds like the prophet of Elijah. Because he's like, he came to Apple and he's like, hey, you fools. Like, you guys are limping around all these products. We gotta pick one product and one product only. And for 40 years, I'm just gonna devote this company to that product. And people are like, no, you're stupid. It's like, no, I have the fire of Steve Jobs within me, right? And that devotion, that consecration, where if you read his story in the Walter Isaacson biography, or you read any movie, you realize like, oh, this guy, he sucks. Like, I don't want to be around that guy. He gives up his family. He gives up his friends. He gives up, he even sells out his founding co-founder with him to continue on his vision. And what is he doing? He's consecrating himself to a vision to change the world. Now, that type of consecration, probably not the healthiest, right? But the effects are undeniable. He changed the world. What Elijah is asking us is this. Can we have that same mindset with God? That consecration. What, what is consecration? What do I mean by that? It's a, it's a devotion, a deep devotion that requires major sacrifice and life change. Let, let me get on a more practical level uh, for all the men, or most of the men here. Uh, you guys have done this already if you play fantasy football, right? That has changed your life. You have deeply devoted yourself to being a disciple of your fantasy team, right? Every Sunday, what do you do? You check your phone on a constant basis, just refreshing. Every Sunday after church, what do you do? You go home and watch the games. And throughout the week, you just send trades. You're just always like, it changes you. Others of us, if you're like a, a Swifty or a BTS fan, like that's, that's consecration, right? You, you wait at 5 a.m. to try and buy tickets. And those tickets cost literally the cost of your kidney on the black market. So what do you do? You save money, you change your life, you devote yourself of like, I'm gonna starve myself for a month so I can afford to sit on the nosebleeds in the rain and see Taylor Swift, right? Some of us do that. If you do that, hey, no hate, awesome. Why? Because you know what devotion is. The challenge that Elijah is giving us is if you want to rebuild your altar, can you do that within your own time with God and Jesus? J.C. Ryle puts it this way which I found as a challenge and even a rebuke to myself and I think to the church. There is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. 
It's a cheap Christianity which offends nobody, requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and, put it bluntly, is worth absolutely nothing. And I read that, I'm ooh, you know, I was like, oh, it's like, it's a little harsh. But when you read the story of Elijah and you take a look at your own life, and I'm, and I'm not speaking to you guys, I'm speaking to myself at this moment, that I find that to be so true. I'm just like Israel. My worship oftentimes can be cheap because there are different idols lurking in my heart. Can we consecrate ourselves before the Lord? What that means is devoting time, sacrificing, making space for God. It starts small. And I'll help you with this. We're, gonna about, to, we're about to enter into period of Lent, which is 40 days before Easter. And what our staff's going to try and do is provide you a schedule to practice Lent. Historically, what Lent would you do? You would fast every day, going up to Easter to prepare yourself for the celebration of that. And as you fast, it's not just like, this weird, like, masochistic, I'm just kind of hitting myself because I want to feel holier. No, as you fast and you get hungry, maybe for food, maybe for your screen, maybe for your money, with that energy, you use it to devote to think about God in his scripture, in prayer, in silence. I hope we can do that together as a church. I hope even for Lent, for just 40 days, we can consecrate ourselves to rebuild the altar. So consecration. And I'll end with this, too. Don't forget that we're wet wood. Don't forget that we're wet wood. Let me end with this. I, you know, as I speak to all this, some of you are like, man, I feel pretty guilty. I feel pretty burdened. I feel pretty ashamed because I don't feel like I'm ready to do anything Elijah is telling me to do. I've sinned literally the minute before I walked into church. I barely can make it to church. And, and let me tell you this. What stops us from repairing the altar for many of us in our hearts is shame and guilt. The reason so many of us continue to barely come to church, it's, and, I, and I realize this too, it's not because we're bad Christians, but it's even just so hard to get ourselves here because we don't feel worthy to sit here. And I get it. But remember this, why does Elijah pour water three times on, this, on the altar? Three times. Like if you read the text, it's like, we get it. Like why, why do you need to specify three times? What Elijah's trying to show you is this, I'm trying to make it clear to Israel and to the readers of this text, this altar should not be able to be lit on fire. Uh, there's a couple dads here that we love, um, like, merging around fire pits. Like, you put fire with men, and it's just like they bond very close, right? Um, one guy feels that too. Um, and one thing I realize is this. There are different ways to start fires, but if your firewood is wet, it is impossible. You can throw gasoline on it. You can, you can drop TNT on it. Wet wood does not ignite. What is Elijah doing? What Elijah's trying to show us is this. No matter how far you've strayed, no matter how ill-equipped you feel, no matter how broken your life is, God can light a fire in your heart. God lights wet wood completely on fire. What, is it, what does the text say? The fire that Elijah lit licked up the water. Physically impossible. That's the extent of God's grace and love for you on the cross. When Jesus died... Look, on our own, with nothing else, we are wet wood before God. We sin, we're rebellious, we're just like Israel. He shows us miracles, we're like, ah, and then we forget it the next day. But what we realize is this, you're not wet wood because what covers you is Jesus' blood. And when God sees you, he does not see your brokenness or your sin, he sees the holiness of his son. 
and in turn brings about his fire and presence and holiness to you. No matter how far you feel from God, remember this, God can light wet wood on fire. God can light your heart on fire. All we have to do is repair the altar in faith and consecration and Jesus will take care of the rest. So I hope this week we can do that in our own ways. We're about to take communion to you and Jay will lead, that, uh, lead us in that moment but communion is a reminder of this. The fire that we're seeking is already within us through Jesus. Let's pray.